0: You're listening to the 2019 Central Texas Men's Conference. More information is available at centraltexasmc.com. Here's Ben Stewart. Hey, can we just give a huge thank you to the band for leading us this week? These guys are done awesome. I'm grateful for them. It's cool. And let me just say this: we're going to jump in together. Um, and uh i'll pray and leap into this but uh rick and i are gonna jet out of here get on a plane in austin and fly back to dc uh which we're excited about and uh so please pray for us as we reach dc i've talked to several of you here about it that uh it's a wonderful place to be in ministry and it's a challenging place to be in ministry so uh whenever you read the news about the capitol Uh, I don't know how much of it you should believe or not. You can pray about that. Uh, But uh, I will say if it could be a reminder for you to pray for us, man, we would take it and we would love it. So pray for us. And uh, if you want to follow along, Passion City Church DC. uh, A lot of what I've taught here, a version of it exists on our podcast there. Uh, Some of you asked, can we find that? Yeah, that's where that is. So Passion City Church DC is where we're at. But I just wanted to say before we jump in, uh, it's been awesome to be here with you. It's been encouraging to us. So thank you, uh, Dr. Verheiden, for inviting Rick and I to be here. uh, And thank you guys for hosting us. It's been pretty great. So we're grateful. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pray and then we'll jump in. Well, Father, I want to thank you for the work you've already done in the lives of men here. And for the work, Lord, that you want to do, I believe that even this morning, this isn't kind of the throwaway one before we all head to the car, there there are some things you want to set firmly in us, and I pray we wouldn't miss that. And so, Father, I pray even now, Lord, that you would open up our minds, quicken our thoughts. Lord, stir our affections so that we become men who walk with you. And that the world is a different place and the world is a better place because we exist. Because we are men who walk humbly with our God. And so make us that please and use this moment to that end. And I'm going to invite you guys one last time if you're willing. Just take a minute and pray for us and ask him to teach us this morning. And then if you would please pray for me that he would speak through me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you, and we trust you. Use this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned the SEALs a lot this weekend. Didn't even know I was going to do it that much, but why not do one more? So uh, a couple of years ago, several years ago, I uh, had the opportunity and privilege to show up at Coronado Island, the base there, and to negotiate the SEAL obstacle course. And so I went out there with a buddy of mine, and for the next several grueling minutes, was leaping over walls, climbing up nets, crawling under wood, and just doing various grueling activities, grunting and sweating, trying to make my way through this obstacle course. And when I finally crossed the finish line at the end, my friend informed me that I did it in 12 minutes, just under the time necessary to qualify to become a SEAL. I thought, that's amazing. I could qualify to be a SEAL. And then my buddy ran it, and uh, he did it in six minutes. I was like, you know, he's run it before, so, you know, he had some experience. And he's a SEAL. Uh, and then over the next two weeks, when I had to take nine Advil a day just to function because I was hurting so much, I realized, you know what? I don't think I'm built to be a Navy SEAL. I think God built me to read. That's how I'm built. But you know, they never put it on me. I always leave that community challenged to be a better version of myself. They never put any guilt on me about not being man enough. But it's impossible to leave that community and not start asking those questions of, am I man enough? And typically my mind starts whirling in places like, why have I not learned to fire an M4 yet? Like, when am I going to do that? (laughs) Or like, what would be my first move in a knife fight? I mean, really, right now it'd be something like, and I just don't think that's a good idea. Or what happens when we got to exit quick and it's time to fly a helicopter? Am I going to have to find a real man to fly it? Like, can someone please save me? I'm like, come on. And I do this to myself before I realize if the standard of masculinity is a Navy SEAL, then there's not many men in the world. And that just can't be it. So that really did launch me on a journey of, well, then what is a man for? You know, I know what a phone does. I know what a hammer does. What does a man do? What what are the functions someone does that you say that's what a man does? And the reality is I think what you have to do is look at created intent. If you want to know what a creation is for, you look to the creator. You know, every time a new iPhone comes out, millions of people watch online and millions buy it and are in use weeks later. But when they do the big announcement and all the fanfare on stage, you notice they never hold up the phone and say, watch As we slide it under this door, how easily it keeps the door open. We have revolutionized room entry. They don't do that. Notice how evenly it can spread butter upon toast. They don't. Why not? Because you can do that stuff with an iPhone. You can. But that's not what it's for. And they know and we know that the greatest potential is achieved and the highest satisfaction is experienced when it's used according to created intent. And that's not just true of phones, it's true of everything. A bird is most free when it flies, a fish is most free when it swims, and a man is most free when he fulfills created intent to be the kind of thing God made him to be. Which leads you to the question, then what did God made us to be? Well, he made us to be like him. So it's interesting in Genesis chapter one, Genesis one, verse two starts with a negative situation. It says, now the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and all commentators agree. Those are negative words, formless, void, darkness and the deep. And so many scholars ask, well, what is this negative situation? Situation right at the outset. What happened before that to create this negative situation? The Bible doesn't tell you. It's not interested in giving you every little bit of detail. It's interested in telling you the story. And as it's telling you the story, it lets you know there's a negative situation. And the two leads are that it's formless and void. They're the Hebrew words tohu and bohu, which sound like a clown duo. But it's not. Tohu means without form, without structure. And bohu means uh, void, no fullness. It would be like saying there's no vase, no structure, and then no flowers in the vase, no fullness. That's the problem at the beginning of Genesis, no form and no fullness, no structure and no life. And then it says the spirit of God begins to move over the surface of the water. And God begins to enact. And he says, let there be light to rid the darkness. And then he says, there's evening and there's morning one day. What's a day? It's a rotation of the earth. He takes this watery matrix and begins to spin it. And as God does, it begins to separate and he creates sky. It begins to recede and he creates land. And so by the end of days one, two, and three, you have sea, air, and land. Everything necessary to be a Navy SEAL. Sea, air, and land. And... They're the basic teleological structures to support life. In three days, God solves Tohu, He builds structure. And then if you follow the next three days, there's a poetic link to it. In the next three days, in a parallel function, he fills each of those things. He fills the sky with the heavenly bodies and with birds. He fills the sea with fish. And then he fills the land with animals and man. And God solves Bohu. Into the structure, he puts life. It's not a stifling structure to hold people back. It's a structure that is conducive and necessary for the flourishing of all living things. Do you see that? That's what God does in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, Genesis 2 tells our story, and it starts with a negative situation. Genesis 2 5 says, Now there was no shrub of the field yet in the earth, no plant for the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Do you hear that? No, 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 no. It's bad. And so God solves the rain issue, but then he creates man. And it says he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Control it, but fill it. And then you see in Genesis 2.15, he's clear about it. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. What does the word cultivate mean? When I'm cultivating some plants, what do I do? I am manipulating the environment. What's the environment I'm manipulating? I'm trying to create an environment that's, that plant is maximally fruitful. So I'm going to rip some weeds out. I'm going to put some fertilizer in. I am going to water it. I'm going to make sure it's positioned under the sun. I am going to impose my will on this thing to create an environment that's conducive for life to flourish. I create structure so life can flourish, form for the sake of flourishing. I act like God. I'm a structure builder, but not stifling legalistic structure, structure so that life can flourish. Do you see that? That's what a man is supposed to do. That's what we're created for. And we do it in our businesses. You create buildings so they won't fall in and kill us, right? I structure a farming operation so this crops can grow to feed us. I structure an educational format so children can learn to read and access their gifts and use them for the common good. Every single one of us in our careers do that. But it's not just careers. We're meant to do that in all of life. As at home, as a man, I look at my home and say, "How do I take my time, money, resources, and energy, and position it all in a way so that my wife is fully who she's meant to be under God? How do I structure my own world so that my community is better because I exist? And then, how do I structure my life? That's what we're meant to do." Now, sin upended all of that, and chaos reigned. And you see, chaos is so bad that by the time Noah gets around, what happens? The world is back to a flooded, watery matrix. It's a mess. And yet God continues to move in grace. And what ultimately happens? He sends Jesus to do what? Build a kingdom. A kingdom is a system of rule, a structure where we can be most alive. And we are meant to be like him. That's what we're meant to do. And so while the enemy wants to create an environment that unravels life and brings chaos, we are meant to be like God where we create environments that are conducive to flourishing and conducive to life. Do you see that? So before we leave today, I want to give you five things I think you need to put into your life to help structure your own life so you can flourish. We could talk about how to be a good husband. We could talk about how to run a business. All these flow out of this theological principle. But I just want to start with you. What are some things we can put in our life? Last night was about fleeing destructive things. What environment can I build so that I can pursue the most beautiful things to know God and to be like him? What do I need to put in my schedule? And the first thing I would say is a productive schedule. You need a productive schedule. You need structure. Some of us have no structure at all. I watch Netflix till 3 a.m., fall asleep, wake up at 3 p.m. and go, oh, man, I missed class. Better play Call of Duty, right? And you're just, you're not helping any of us, right? You are a structureless mess, Right? Others of us are very structured people. I get up before the sun and I attack the day and I only eat shredded wheat and you're just a very structured person. But the termination point of that structure is not life. Nobody's flourishing because of your structure, not even you. And so we have to build structure for the sake of life. And the first thing you need is a productive schedule, form for the sake of fullness in your own life. Lack of a healthy structure will open you up to the dual attack of unproductivity and stress. And I talk to so many men that that attack gets them. When you ask them, how are you doing? What do they say? Busy. Man. And yet, when they get to work, they sit there and are like, oh, man. And you see like a million emails and go, I don't even know what to do. Hey, can you help me with this copier? Yeah, sure. I end up doing that. And then I go to a two-hour lunch that has no strategic purpose. then I sit back in my office and go, oh, man. And I see guys leave the office. And they go, man, I had this long list of to-dos, and I was busy all day, but this didn't accomplish that, so I'm busy and tired, I feel like I got a lot to do, but feel like I'm not getting much done, and that frustration opens you up to exit into sin, because the enemy will always present you an island to get out of that stressful situation. So you have to know that about yourself, that some of us are like an octopus on roller skates. A lot of movement, but it's not forward, right? Or others of us uh, are like a lion. I remember I read an article about lion tamers. And it was explaining what the what the stool was for. You know, when they bring a stool in there. Like, like I understand what the whip is for. And I understand what the gun's for. That's if, the, if things aren't really working out. <laughs> What's the chair for? You know, that he picks up and holds out there. And what the article was saying is he does that... Because what happens is the lion tries to focus on four points at once. These four points of the chair are coming at him and he's trying to lock in on something and his inability to lock in on something makes him just sit there passively and not do the thing lions are built to do, namely eat the soft, chewy guy right in front of him. And so he just locks in and can't figure it out so he doesn't move. And then as the whip goes, he just starts doing ridiculous little things that are really beneath what a lion is supposed to do, And that's the same with many of us. I don't even know how to attack the day, so I don't feel like I'm winning in life, right? And I'll hear people say it about Jesus. Man, Jesus' ministry was just a ministry of interruptions, you know, so be ready for the interruption. I'm like, no! No, it wasn't! You watch Jesus the way he did his life. He rolled into town, and he healed people all night long. And the next day, Peter said, hey, everybody's waiting for you. Get back there and heal people. And what did Jesus say? No. He said, I'm here to preach the gospel. We're going to the next town to preach it. He would walk by and some guys are like, hey, I want to follow you. Just let me bury my own dad. And he didn't even stop for that guy. He's like, let the dead bury their own dead. Some other guy was like, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. He's like, fox have holes. I don't. And he's just moving. Jesus never stopped unless he wanted to. Son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, that is in accordance with my strategic purpose because I am the son of David and I am here to bring mercy. So let me talk to you, young man. What do you need? And you see, Jesus organized his schedule by his priorities, not by proximity. And many of us, we just kind of do what's near and never feel like we're advancing. Jesus organized his schedule by his priorities, not proximity. And we need to do the same. Ephesians 5.16 says, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Proverbs 12 says, the hand of the diligent will rule. And we will be held accountable for that. Jesus said it, pragmatiza, make a profit. Take the talent I've given you and make more with it. That's what we're meant to do. And there's a lot of ways to do that. I'll tell you one helpful exercise I do for myself. I used to do it daily. Now I kind of got it locked in, so I do it periodically. And I would have interns do it back in the day. And that is I would take a piece of paper and I would write out every role I have under God. And so for me, it was roles like I am a teacher of the word of God. I am a leader of a staff. I am the husband of a wife, I'm the father, and I would write out my roles and then I would write underneath those as headings everything I felt like I had to do underneath those roles. And I would just vomit it up on a piece of paper like I gotta do this, I gotta read that, I gotta do this, I gotta call this guy, I gotta email that, that." and I would just let it fill up a paper because those things spin around in you anyway and create stress. I just got them all out and it let me pray over them. And then I would pull out my schedule of a week, and I put a whole week on a single piece of paper broken up into 30-minute increments, and I would put on that schedule the non-negotiables, things I knew I had to be at. I got this meeting, that one, whatever. And what I would inevitably see is all this white space. There's my time. Where will I put it? And I don't want to watch TV for three hours at night and then be too tired to read the Word in the morning and go, I don't know, it's so hard to read the Bible. Not if I get to bed at a reasonable hour. And what do I want to be true of me? Do I want it to be true of me that I watched every single show on Netflix or that maybe I watched a show and then really gave myself enough rest that I can be a man of God who's soaked in His Word? And I begin to control my schedule based on my roles that I schedule by priority and not by proximity. And I take these things that are Indicative of who I am under God, and I zero them in on the schedule. And it gives me freedom. I know for me, I am most effective creatively early in the morning. So I don't meet with people early in the morning. Hey, can we have breakfast? No. Hey, can we have coffee? No. Hey, can I call you tomorrow morning? No. From about 9 to 11, that's when my mind is firing at its best. That's when I write sermons. Don't call me, right? And then afternoon, I know that I really can't create sermons very well, so I'd be happy to sit with you and talk about whatever you want to talk about. And I just realized that's me. And I became a student of myself and say, that's how I can control my environment. So Ben is maximally flourishing under God. Do you see it? It's not legalism. It's being a student of yourself. How do I structure my day so that I flourish under God? Do you see it? More we could say there, but let's keep moving on. Because the second thing you need is persistence in the scripture. You need to be a persistent in the word of God. That last night we talked about how evil works and how to get away from it, but the reality is ultimately for us, the best defense is a good offense. The best defense against sin is a good offense. Augustine said it, arguably one of the greatest church fathers that ever lived, second only to the Apostle Paul. Augustine said this, as he dealt ferociously with sexual addiction and finally broke free of it after reading romans 13 he said this how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys i once so feared to lose you drove them from me you who are the true sovereign joy you drove them from me and you took their place you who are sweeter than all pleasure it's not just enough to say, don't think about that, don't look at that, don't look at it, don't do it. I have to replace it, right? That's what the old school Puritans used to say. How do you dislodge a beautiful thing from the human heart? You replace it with a more beautiful thing. How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of you are like, who's Rosalind? What are you talking about? <laughs> Go back to Romeo and Juliet. At the beginning, he's pining away about Rosalind. Oh, Rosalind's so hot. I can't live without her. Oh, my God, I'll die without Rosalind. And finally, Benvolio is so frustrated. He's like, dude, I'm going to take you to a party, and there's going to be like a 100 girls hotter than Rosalind. Okay? That's like the rough translation. It's like the message version, but read it. It's there. And Romeo says, the all-seeing sun has never seen her match since first the world began. It's impossible to break this addiction to Rosalind. But then he goes to the party, and he sees Juliet. And that night, he sneaks into her yard and says, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? There's the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon which is already sick and pale with grief that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Rosalind who? You go, how am I going to break my obsession with this particular show or this game or this distraction or this thing or this indulgence? The way you do it is you replace it with a more beautiful thing and the enemy wants to load your mind with broken thoughts to stir your affections for darkened things so you will walk into isolation with God but you can know that same wiring. That's why in the Bible spirituality, however you conceive of it, is primarily presented as a battle of the mind because what you think about will be what you care about and what you care about you will chase. So Colossians 3.2 will say set your mind on things above. Romans 12.2 says don't be conformed." to this world but be transformed how Paul by the renewing of your mind Ephesians 1 Paul prays for us that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him Ephesians 4 he says lay aside the old self and be renewed by the spirit of your mind Philippians 4 he says whatever is true whatever is honorable right pure lovely think about those things 2 Peter he says I want to stir you up by way of reminder Romans 8 he says to say To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. I focus my mind on beautiful things, and the more I think about him, the more I become like him and become what I am meant to be under God. So set your mind on things above. Now, is it purely a mental exercise? No. Spirituality consists of holy affections, right? But Paul said the goal of our instruction is love. He said, I want to teach you things about God, not so you'll become arrogant and legalistic. You can do that. I want to teach you things about God so that it becomes fuel for your passions for God. You can load your mind with scripture and be a cold-hearted person. Loading your mind with scripture will not guarantee you have a heart that's passionate for God, but you will never have a heart for a passionate for God without that scripture in your mind. It is the wood that fuels the fire of your affections. So find a way to do it consistently and creatively. Put it in your schedule. Make it non-negotiable. That's what I had to do. That as I broke out my schedule, I would identify times of the day and say, that is my time with God. And if someone says, can you do this? I'd say, I'm sorry, I already have an appointment because I do. I have a time set apart with him. And every few months I reevaluate what's the best time for that and how am I going to do it? And you want to come in with a time and a place and a plan. Where's a time I can focus a place without distraction and a plan so they don't show up there and just start throwing the Bible open, but a path I can go on. Get a book that'll help you. Get a resource with some guys. I'll decide to go through a book of the Bible together and read a verse a day or write out books of the Bible. That's what I did in college because it made me go slow. And as I went slow, I would just think about God. It didn't become a race to try to read through the whole Bible in some set amount of time. The goal was not to get through the Bible. The goal was to get the Bible in me, that it would stir my affections for God. So give yourself that moment. I remember I had a student in my ministry that came to Christ, was excited about growing in him. He's like, what do I do? And I was like, well, you need to see him. Those who look at Jesus become like him. You need to get into his word. we got to figure that out. I said, so we need a time and a place and a plan. I said, so a time. How about first thing in the morning? Because that's, for me, the best time to meet with God. He's like, I can't do that. I'm like, what do you mean you can't do that? And he's like, man, I barely get to school clothed. He's like, I just don't think I can do it. And I was like, well, all right, fine. Is there a time a day where you're really not doing anything productive? And he sat and thought, and he's like, three o'clock. He said, I get home from school, and I do nothing. I just sit on a couch and, like, eat chips. I'm like, all right, man, three o'clock. I said, is there a place that you can focus? I said, how about a coffee shop? Because at that time in my life, that's where I met with God. I mean, like, before the scripture was even open, if I had, like, a good latte and a nice seat by a window, the spirit was already moving. I'm like, thank you, Lord. You were good. You are sovereign over all. I just thought, that's where God lives, right? And he was like, no, I don't really like doing that. I was like, well, you're going to have to pray about that. I don't really understand it. I was like, is there anywhere else you can go? And he thought about it and he said, my garage. He said, nobody's in my garage. And I said, okay, it's a date. Three o'clock every day in your garage, go. We were teaching through Colossians at the time. And I said, just write out the book of Colossians. And, and I encourage him to do what I do. Take two colored pens. One pen is the color of scripture. The other pen is the color of you. Because you want to make sure you and the scripture are, are mingling together. And it is getting into you. And so he wrote out Colossians. And it was fascinating. For months afterwards, he was like, Ben, it was the craziest thing. I was talking to this guy. He brought up a problem. And I was like, that's in Colossians. And then I was talking to somebody else. And they brought up a problem. And I was like, that's in Colossians. And just he just was obsessed. He was like, every answer. And I'm like, well, there is more Bible. But you're off to a great start. But... He ended up writing music, and for him, he became a worship leader and traveling the world, helping people understand how it is to know God and to love him, and it started at 3 o'clock in his garage. Get consistent, and then get creative. Find those times like we talked about in your car, taking walks at night, places where you come alive with God. The third thing I would say you need is protective saints, people around you that care about you, and I love that our brother shared that up here. That that kind of structure of men around you is going to keep you on the rails of being the kind of man you want to be, right? Galatians 5 says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's a communal sport. 2 Timothy 2.22, which we talked about last night, flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness along with those who call out to God out of a pure heart. God has rigged it that way. You will never be fully you without us. We need us, Right? Philippians 3 says, brothers, join in my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. I love that. It's the word scopos in Greek where we get scope. Paul's looking at the Philippians and he says, scope out the people who you know are really following Jesus and imitate them. That we're meant to do that in rooms like this. To identify those guys and say, I want to be more like him and get towards that guy and take him to lunch and talk to him. We're meant to do this as a team sport. You need men above you who are smarter than you and wiser than you. Hebrews 13 says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. He says, watch those guys that you saw their life and the decisions they made and how much they knew God, how effective they were in their life. And you go, what environment are they in that's leading them to those choices? Let me get in that environment. Let me get around those guys. I know for me as a young man, I realized I don't know what a dad does in the home. I don't know. And I could sit there and and cry about it and complain about it. Or what I would do is I was working in the youth ministry at my church. When I would see a particularly well-adjusted kid, I would ask them, who are your parents? And when they pointed out their parents, I would go introduce myself and ask them if I could take them to lunch sometime, and I would interview them. They didn't know I was doing that. I was sneaky about it, but I was trying to figure out what they do, and I still do that. Whenever I meet someone who has well-adjusted kids, I say, hey, don't get all humble on me about this. Tell me the one thing you did as a dad in your home that you say, you know what? I'm really glad I did that. I'm proud I made that decision. That was a good parenting move. Tell me that. And I ask so many men that. Why? Because I want to be better. I need a pattern out in front of me that I can follow. And so get men around you that you can do that. Scope out the guys who are walking and imitate their faith. See if you can go to lunch with them. Now, don't walk up to them and say, will you be my mentor that I can call every day and go to lunch constantly and you carry me along through this world? That's a little much. (laughs) Just ask them to coffee once. And then maybe when I first started ministry, I asked six different older men to coffee. Five of them, about one conversation was good. It was the sixth guy that I was like, man, I'm not going to call you every day of the week, but in a few months, can I call you again? And just when I, when I fill up a sheet of paper with questions, can I call you every time the page gets full? And he said, absolutely. And over time, we just began to get better and better friends. And he said, you don't need to ask me anymore. Just call me Whenever. And over time, I built up about five of those. And I've got a ring of counselors, of men around me who have kept me from making a lot of stupid decisions. Because with many counselors, victory is sure. You need a group of men below you Paul did that at the end of his life. I love it. 2 Timothy 2. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Pick up Mark and bring him. He's useful for me to service. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. Paul is an old man dying in a cell, but he has ministry on five fronts. Why? Because he has these young men he's invested in. He is sending out to make an impact on the world. That's the kind of man you want to be. I remember I had a pastor say it. I want 20-year-old pallbearers at my funeral. Young men in tears thanking God for the investment I put in their life. And I want that for me as well. And some of you that have been through addiction and recovery ministry know that one of the ways you keep your sobriety is what? By investing in those who aren't as far along as you. That investing in them reminds you to be the best version of you. You need to invest in the latest generation. Don't just get mad at who the fathers before you weren't and then miss out on being that to the next generation. We have to carry along both that I look for older men to follow and I look for younger men to encourage because that's the sweet spot you want to be in. William Tennant, who was in America in its earliest days, was a terrible preacher. His church tried to fire him multiple times, but they couldn't do it because he was Presbyterian. (laughs) But he built a little log cabin in the backyard of his house and he would disciple young men back there and people would make fun of him. This Williams little log cabin college, they always made fun of it. And We don't know what he taught those men, but we know they left with a fire in their eyes and they would go out across the frontiers of America with some grit to go into hard places, preach the gospel, and every one of them built a little log cabin. William Tennant's log cabin became Princeton. And 67 other colleges around America came out of those little log cabins in the backyard. A not particularly talented man changed America. Why? Because he took this seriously to invest in the next generation. And then get good people around you. Paul at the end of his life says, only Luke is with me. Paul who had let his body get beaten up by the gospel had the physician who was right there at his side keeping him alive and you need that too, Rocky had Apollo, Frodo had Sam. Even the Lone Ranger was not alone, right? And you need buddies. You need men around you that love you and are not impressed with you that will ask you the hard question and make you be the kind of man you want to be, right? Fourth thing, I think we're doing good here. We're almost done. Fourth thing is you need a positive release, a positive release, because here's the terrifying thing about the human machine. You will seek pleasure. You will. And so if all you're doing in your spiritual life is just trying to knuckle down your discipline, at some point your body is going to scream for pleasure, and the enemy will always offer you an illicit island to indulge in. And many of you, that's what happened. I work, 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 work. I get exhausted. And then some particularly fascinating thing gets in front of me and I compromise in the night and I don't let anyone know about it. And slowly my soul dies and my optimism about my making a difference in the world dies with it. Why? Because the enemy's bleeding you out a little cut at a time. And what do you need to do? What you need to do is say, the human engine does seek pleasure. So let me point myself towards a positive release that will have no sorrow added to it. Every minister I know who stayed in ministry has done that. John Piper played basketball for a while. I would have loved to have seen that. (laughs) I had another pastor buddy that I was like, what do you do? And he's like, man, I love gardening. And I was like, that's that's, that's great. I don't have a clue how to do that. That's probably not going to be my thing. That stresses me out, right? I know other guys that do woodworking, just some things that allow them to focus and release. For me, working out is that. It's just a time to get away from a screen, right? You just find the things that are fun for you. Uh, I remember I had buddies that I would see their life and want to be like him. And so many of them, I had three different men that I wanted to emulate, tell me that. Man, you need to focus on having fun. You need to figure out how to fun. I'm like, why do they keep saying that? Because I was one of those disciplined guys. And what I realized is that's what's keeping them on the rails, that they know they need a release. And so they pick things that are fun. I had a guy challenge me to do that once. He said, write out for me all the things you want to stop doing and all the changes you want to make in your life and I wrote out these two long columns and he said, now write out a column of stuff you do just for fun and I wrote two things and he said, I want you to stop for a minute and see how pathetic your third column is. He says, I don't even want you to think about the first two right now. Think about that third one. What are you going to do that's fun and I didn't even know. I had to think about it. And I realized, you know what I love to do? I love to go out to Big Bend where there's not many people. And so I realized I don't have to live out there. I don't want to live out there. There's not enough water. But if I always have a trip I'm excited about planned in the future with me and my buddies, I'm alive. I can see it and I'm excited about it. My wife bought me this electric skateboard that goes 20 miles an hour. And it's awesome. And part of me was like, I'm a 40-year-old man. What am I doing writing that? I was like, I'll tell you what I'm doing writing that. Saving my soul. Because D.C. is tedious. And I was trying to tell myself, maybe it'll be a good commuting tool. Forget that. What's fun is to get at the top of Capitol Hill right next to the Capitol and zoom past people all the way down to the Washington Monument, terrify them. They're all taking pictures, screaming, Dad, look at the man on the board. And it's fascinating and fun. So I do that so I don't go crazy and do something I regret. You have to find a positive release for you. When, the, when God is leading you, he will lead you beside Green pastures, he'll lead you beside cool waters and he'll restore your soul. If that words, restore your soul, seem foreign to you, it's because you're not letting God shepherd you. If he's shepherding you, he will lead you to places of positive rest. And the last thing you need is the presence of the spirit of God. The very presence of the spirit of God. Because you can knuckle down all this discipline and you're like a guy that throws wood into a fire pit puts a bunch of kindling in it and then sits by it and is wondering why they're still cold. You need the very spirit of God to light that fire ablaze. And that's the desperate situation we're in. That's why we're always dependent is you can't control your affections. Isn't that terrifying? You can't. Like, try that sometime today. Just look at somebody and say, I will choose to passionately love that person with all my heart. You can't do it! You can't produce those affections. You're that desperate. I remember when I used to travel and speak at camps in Texas, I would always ask these kids, uh, who in here likes fruit? And people would raise their hand. Who in here likes apples? And they raise their hand. I'd always pick some kid. I'd try to find like, the most country-looking dude. And I'm like, hey, stand up, man. What's your favorite kind of apple? And I wanted to ask a country guy because I knew that would be a hard question to answer. He'd be like, well, the golden delicious. Well, I don't know, the Granny Smith. And you're like, man, you, you just got to pick one. And they'd pick one. I'd say, alright. How long does it take to grow one off your arm? And they'd stand out there. Uh, uh. It's an easy question, man. How long does it take to grow one off your arm? Five minutes, or 10. And they'd be like, I, I can't, I can't grow. What? You can't? You can't grow one? Or you just lack the chlorophyll? What's your deal? I said, so if you want an apple, where do you you go? You gotta go to an apple tree. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. You want love? That's his fruit, not yours. You can't generate it. You're that desperate. You have to ask for it. That was the Old Testament. When Moses came down with the law, do you remember the Israelites threw a party? And as Moses read the law, they said to him, all that it says we will do. And do you remember God's response? He said, oh, that you had such a heart. He said, you don't have a heart for that. Your heart's wrong. And if you just load your mind with a bunch of law, you will never have a heart that's inclined towards the things of God. That's why the promise of the Old Testament through Ezekiel and Ezekiel 36 is I will put my spirit in you and he will move you to obey my decrees. That's why Galatians 4 says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts which cries out, Abba, Father. The scripture is food for the spirit of God to live in us and to be active, right? And so that's why Galatians says, I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. And I love that because it's a step by step thing. Let us keep in step with the spirit that every moment of my life I'm asking, God, I need you to help me here. God, I need a level of patience in this conversation I don't have. Bring your scripture to mind, but stir my heart with a compassion for this person. Oh God, I need to love this person. I want to come into my house and not bring all my stress. I want to bring love to my kids, but I'm carrying a lot of anxiety. Let me cast my cares on you. And will you fill me with the love for my kids that I want to have? Oh God, will you fill me with love and joy and peace and patience? I ask him and I keep in step with him. So when I climbed Long's Peak with my buddy Ben, We got there and we were feeling good, man. Charging up that mountain, got all the way to the keyhole. The keyhole was where you cross this boulder field and you get up and there's this kind of mountain curvature that looks like a keyhole. When you step over the edge of that, you just see a sheer drop off to the other end and you can't see the bottom. And you go, if we take one more step, we disappear and they find us maybe a week later. And we realized to keep going up the mountain, you had to traverse this ledge that was covered in snow. And we looked at that, and I looked at Ben, and I was like, I don't think we can do this. He's like, I think we can do this. I'm like, I don't think we can do this. And he's like, I think we can do this. And we're arguing about that. And while we're arguing, these two guys walk up. We start visiting with them, and they flew over from Germany to climb this mountain. And they were like, are you going to the top? And we were like, yeah. I we're mean, we going to the top. So they are like, okay. So they pull their backpacks out, and they start putting crampons, those spikes on their boots. They start pulling out pickaxes, and we're like, should we gear up too, man? Yeah. So I put my sweatpants on. I was like, see you boys at the tap, right? And we took off. And as we crossed that snow covered ledge, someone had been there before. There was little footprints in the snow and little holes where a pickaxe could be. So Ben and I would just put our feet in the footholds and our fingers in these little finger holes and begin to walk along this edge. And then it went straight up through the snow. And so we began to climb that snow like a, like a ladder, these footprints. And about midway up it, we began to feel sicker and sicker. Ben dropped his face in the snow. And I was like, you can do this, man. He was like, I don't think we can do this. And I'm looking back at that ledge like, I need you to do this, man. Right? And so we finally made it to the top. And we rounded that edge. And we're like, surely we're at the top. We kind of rounded this corner. And there was another corner. So we rounded that corner, and there was another corner. We rounded that corner, there's another corner. We're like, how round is this mountain? And we rounded another corner, and there was another ascent through the snow. And that's where I looked at Ben. I was like, come on, man, we can just forget it. And we both sat down and began to pray. And as we prayed, that guy came up to us, put those mittens on our hand, began to teach us how to breathe. And as we breathed the way he taught us to, our heads started to clear and we started to get less nauseous. And he said, are you boys ready? Let's go to the top. I was like, all right. So I took the first step and my legs were like jello. And I was like, man, I don't know if we can do this. And he said, well, hang on a second. And he pulls these two uh, pickaxes, you know, those long axes out of his bag and hands them to each one of us. And we were like, oh, yeah, we are doing this. And so I put it down and begin to walk, but I'm still kind of shaky. And I'll never forget. He looked over at me and he said, I'll tell you what, man, here's the deal. He said, I'm going to go first. You grip onto my belt. He said, I'm going to kick out some footsteps in the snow and you just step where my feet go and I'm going to lead you to the top of this mountain. So he turned around and I grabbed his belt and the pickaxe, he gave me another hand and Ben grabbed mine and a couple folks who were with that guy were behind us and he would kick out a little step in the snow and he would step up and as he stepped, I rose with him. And as he stepped, I rose with him. And when we got to the top, we looked down on clouds. It was unbelievable. Turned out the guy was a missionary from New Mexico. It was just, it's just this amazing guy. And as the day went on, he was like, hey, we get got to get off the top of this mountain because you're not supposed to stay at the top of mountains after noon because lightning storms are frequent. And my buddy Ben had actually been struck by lightning. It was actually his testimony that he was like, I was living crazy. And some people use that as a metaphor. I was living crazy. And then God got me like a bolt of lightning. His wasn't a metaphor. He was like, no, I was living crazy. God literally hit me with a literal bolt of lightning. I thought I was going to die. I didn't. And I gave my life to Jesus. But he didn't want to get hit by one again. So he was like, we need to go back down. And so we start heading back down. We go around all those curves. We get to that long descent, and we look at it. And Ben and I looked at it, the thing that had destroyed us so much. And we both, like, started to cry a little bit. We're like, oh, my God, this part's so horrible. And I remember the guy looked over at us, and he goes, oh, come on, guys. This is the most fun part. We're like, what? And he was like, yeah, you just put your feet out in front of you, your hands behind you to steer, and you slide down. Let's go. And he went sliding down. And we were like, ah, and then I looked over to everyone else and they were all looking at me like I'm next. And I'm like, I hate all of you. <laughs> but I sat on that mountain of difficulty and I put my feet in front of me and my hands back and I began to slide. And I got to tell you something. I know I didn't meet all of you guys, but I promise you, you have never done something this fun. It was fantastic. So I am just zooming down this mountain edge. And he told us, if you ever feel like you lose control, spin around and throw your elbows into the snow. You'll stop on a dime. So I thought, I should try that. So I just spun around, threw them in, dead stop. And I was like, say my name. right, and kind of flip back around, (laughs) kept going. And we go down as I'm approaching that cliff edge. I noticed him stop to get that traverse across the side because if you don't stop, you go careening over the edge and they never find your body. So he's stopping, so I was like, I need to slow down. So I spin around, throw my elbows in and look up right when I see my buddy Ben's smiling face and his big feet (laughs) as they make contact with my face. And I come up and flip over backwards and I begin to roll in an uncontrolled descent and Ben and I get tangled up together and then we finally end face first sliding towards that edge in a pretty dangerous place. And as we do that, we watch this man look up and see us. And then in a second, he grabs two pickaxes, throws them on the ground, loops his knees around him, and goes, (laughs) and catches us both. And the rest of the trip down, Ben and I are like, do you think he's an angel? I kind of think he's an angel. I think God sent us an angel. I don't think he's real. Keep watching him. He's going to go up in a chariot in a second. I mean, this guy was crazy. You go, why do I tell you that other than to have fun? For this reason, it was good for Ben and I to get in shape and train. It was good for Ben and I to have each other. But at the end of the day, we were were depleted and at the end of our resources, we needed someone stronger than us that we could grip onto and just keep in step with him, one step at a time, leading me to a place I could never get on my own. That's what you're meant to do, that I come to God dependent, and say, Move my heart to obey your decrees. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not towards getting gain. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your law. God, help me so that as I read your word, logic becomes fire. The word becomes passion. And I become the kind of man who will make decisions that will lead me to a place where I'm structuring my life to where I flourish. I'm structuring my home where my wife flourishes. I'm structuring our family where my kids flourish. And I am part of the community that help others rise that I can look around and say to the degree it's humanly possible I am like God why because I've built environments of the mind and of the heart where I make decisions of the will that lead to blessing and glory and life until the day we're in the city of God a structure where we all flourish forever that's the goal amen let me pray for us well father that's a lot of information but I pray for us now For every man in this room. Lord, I pray if if at any point in this we just felt shame over where we've fallen short, I pray even now we would confess it knowing you love us. You're a loving dad and you forgive. And I pray for us, God, that maybe there's just one thing. Right now we look and say, you know what? I want to put a stake in the ground of my calendar and say, that's where I'm going to read the word of God. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to ask one of these older guys uh, for a devotional book or a plan. Ask him to give you a picture of where you could steal away with him. Give you a vision of it. Is there a tree to sit under? Is there a a workbench to sit at? Ask him, God, where's the place I'm going to steal away with just you? Maybe for some of you, it's asking him, show me that godly, mature believer that I can ask, man, will you help me? Will you pray with me? I need to confess to you some things because I want to get out of it. Maybe it's for the courage to join that men's group at your church you've been avoiding, always finding a way to be too busy for. Just do it now while while you hold the courage. Maybe for some of us, we just need to ask the spirit to fill us with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Maybe you need to ask him, God, give me the grace to apologize when I get home. I owe my son an apology. With no caveats, daddy's been busy, just saying, hey, I've not talked to you the way I want to. Maybe it's asking for forgiveness of my wife and finding that when I do that, it kicks the coals and rekindles some of the affection in our marriage to come humble, ask for forgiveness. God, I thank you that we don't have to promise you the moon and stars today. We just have to resolve in ourself, I will keep in step with you, moment by moment, walking with you. And as I do, you will build a garden, you will build a city, you will build a structure in me where I flourish as a man and I will build a structure where those around me flourish because I exist. God, may that be true and may our respective towns and may the state of Texas and may the world be different because we are men who walk humbly with our God into your glorious future. We love you and we trust you and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.